Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the National Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Dave Rosh. Dave serves as an Associate Professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where he teaches leadership classes, conducts research on the impact of leadership training initiatives, and coordinates the graduate program in agricultural education. Dave currently serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Leadership Education and is on the faculty of the Leadership Educators Academy. He has served as chair of the Leadership Scholarship Member Interest Group in the International Leadership Association and the co-coordinator of the National Leadership Symposium. Additionally, Dave is the Senior Research Fellow for Leadership, Inc., and he has a PhD in higher education from Syracuse University, an MS in Student Affairs from Colorado State University, and a BS in Psychology from Binghamton University. Most pertinent to our conversation today, Dave is also the editor of the most recent issue of New Directions in Student Leadership, The Role of Student Organizations in Leadership Development. Welcome, Dave. Well, thanks for having me, Miles. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thrilled to have you. Thrilled to, to get to talk to you a little bit more, share about, share about you as a professional, and, and learn a little bit about your perspective on leadership and and, uh, and this new issue of New Directions in Student Leadership. So we'll cool. start okay. with a regular segment that we have called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask a, a fairly silly, arbitrary question here, and, I, and, uh, and, and uh, Dave, you'll uh, get, a, get us a response back. So That's I good. know that you have a goal of running 1,000 miles in 2017. So how are you progressing? Uh, a thousand miles miles is a long way. Uh, I'm probably a little <laughs> bit behind uh, behind schedule with uh, some repetitive stress injuries, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm pre I'm actually pretty close. I might actually make it. <laughs> wow, wow. So what are you at right now? Do you know? Uh, well, let me see. Yeah, you now you're asking me. I'm trying to remember. Uh, somewhere around 650, something like that. So I'm behind, but I'm not like so far behind that I can't catch up. Okay. All right. Does that? Uh, do you have? Uh, do you have like seasonal running preferences? Do you like hate the hot, hate the cold? Is there, you know, like if it starts to get cold, will that will that slow down your momentum? Sure. Well, so I, I'm I'm originally from upstate New York. Uh, so hot is not my fan, not my my fun time. Actually, this, right now, uh, fall. That's the best time. Uh, the the weather's not too hot, crisp. The leaves are different colors. Lots to look at. That's my favorite time to run. Mm, well, it is uh, very generous for you to call it fall from where I'm sitting yeah. in, 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 <laughs> no in South Carolina. It does not quite feel like we have progressed to, to that season yet. So, yeah, oh, all I right. hear you. I hear you. I know you have another ambitious goal about reading in, in 2017. So can you tell us about that and what's the best book that you've read this year? Uh, well, yeah, so uh, I mean, in general, I, tr I try, try uh, to read about a book a week, uh, aiming for like 50 a year. Uh, I, I often don't meet that goal, but it's still like uh, in the sense of uh, you shoot for the moon, you still land among the stars type of idea. Uh, oh, let's see, best book. Uh, you, you know, the, the best, the, the book that has changed my thinking the most, uh, it, it's a nonfiction book. It's called Algorithms to Live By. Uh, and it's, it's actually, it's a book about computer science, believe it or not. But the idea is that uh, computer science algorithms, the way computers uh, like search functions work in, in internet browsers, what we can learn about those algorithms in terms of our own human lives. So like how Google does their search functioning uh, in terms of uh, what we can learn from that in terms of how we can organize our own lives. 
Uh, say, for example, you're looking for a shirt in the closet. Uh, how you might go about doing that using the same type of uh, way of thinking about the world that Google does when somebody searches for something on the internet. So the whole book is about different algorithms like that. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, it, it, yeah well, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds really neat. So uh, how do you manage the fame of being featured <laughs> in the background of several local car commercials? <laughs> <laughs> How do you how do you prevent yourself from getting a big head, you know? <laughs> so so if if commercials had had credits at the end of the commercials, I would be like white guy number 2 by the side of the car. <laughs> I wouldn't even have my name associated with it. But I, I was uh, when I was an undergrad, I did. Uh, I was involved in, in orientation and a few other places that that uh, put me in some places where car car companies at Binghamton, New York, uh, were just looking for students over the summer to to, to be extras and their on their parking lot when they would have like the guy would be talking about all the cool deals. They needed people to look like they were shopping for cars. Uh, at a time when they could control what was going on, so they wanted extra, they wanted like non shoppers uh, playing that role, and they they reached out to our group a couple times, and I was available when they were. So a uh, couple couple summers, and for the next couple years after that, I was in a couple car used car commercials in Binghamton, New York. What an honor! What an honor! Yeah, right, right. I I have yet to sign an autograph. <laughs> I recently learned that uh, that I don't know if you watched the show uh, Fixer Upper um, on I believe that channel is TLC, but I could be wrong. Yeah, uh, yep. I know and, the show you're talking about. Yeah, so Joanna Gaines, who's one of the uh, the stars of that uh, of that show, uh, has been sort of famous in Waco for a lot of her life because her her I believe her dad owns a car dealership in Waco, and she was like the, <laughs> the spokesperson right. for the for the car uh, for the car. Uh, commercials there. So maybe, you know, maybe this is just a, you know, just a sort of a hibernation before your big fame. So. Right, right, right. This is the stepping stone onto bigger things with used car companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to, I'm going to dream about that for you. So. Yeah, cool. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. So I know that you played uh, competitive ultimate frisbee in college. Uh, so what do you love about ultimate frisbee? Oh, it's a great sport. Uh, for for people who don't know it, it's uh it, it's as much running in the speed of like a soccer match, uh, with the the way the the frisbee moves, the way the disc moves is, is sort of like a basketball game with that type of flow. Uh, and you're playing on a field that looks like an elongated football field with end zones, and you score by by catching the the frisbee in the end zone. Uh, I, what I I love a lot of stuff about it. I played all four years in college, and then still continue to play as an adult. Uh, it's a it's a great uh, it's a great sport with uh, lots of camaraderie. Uh, it's a great way to stay in shape. Uh, I wish I could still play at the same pace that I did when I was in my 20s now that I'm in my 40s. Uh, but I, I also kind of like the fact that it's a little off-center. Uh, it's not like everybody plays basketball. Ultimate Frisbee, you can be a little bit unique, and I thought it was a great sport that way. Okay, cool. So we're going to close rapid fire with one of our favorite questions every time, the gripes tab where our guest shares an arbitrary grievance. So, Dave, are you ready to open the gripes tab and tell us <laughs> oh, about no. the yeah, drivers? Yes, I think I'm ready. <laughs> All right, let's, let's hear it. What's my gripe? So uh, pe people who are, are close to me here, I'm, I'm at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign in a small town in the Midwest. 
growing up in New York, uh, I would probably say my biggest gripe, my biggest grievance is the way people drive in the Midwest compared to the way that I drove uh, in New York. I, f I find myself often having the grip, the, uh, the steering wheel a little tighter, waiting for someone to make that ultra slow right turn as everyone else waits behind them and things like that. So if I, if I could change anything, I'd want people in, in, in the Midwest to drive a little faster. But uh, probably nothing more important than that would I gripe about. So I'm, I'm pretty okay with that. Okay. All right. So we'll so we'll close the gripe tab there, and we'll shift to cool. uh, an, to another segment that we have called Getting to Know Dave. So this is designed to help us understand you as a person and a professional, kind of get a sense of your background. So Dave, how did you get into leadership work? Oh, great question. Uh, to me, I would say that the the pivot point on that started way, way back in high school. I was a pretty introverted person. Uh, which you don't see a whole lot in the, the leadership and leadership education field. But I, like, I, I mean, I, I, I had my friends that I was friends with in high school. I, I was involved in a couple of organizations, but I didn't do much more than that. Uh, and in my junior year, near the end of my junior year, uh, my girlfriend at the time said, Dave, you know, you should probably, you, you should think about running for a, like the, the, the position of student senate president. I think that was the title in, in my high school, uh, which I'd never considered before and never thought about. But uh, because I thought that she was pretty smart and she was my girlfriend at the time. I thought, why not? And let's do that. Uh, and I had a great time uh, running. And I, I think I, I got out of my shell a little bit and realized that even introverted people can still learn how to have uh, social skills and be social and, and, and things like that. And that, that sort of got me on the path to by the time I got to undergrad – uh, at Binghamton, the, the uh, year and a half after that, I was the type of student who was involved in 18 different things, uh, probably over-involved at a lot of different times in my, my undergrad career. Uh, but that, that, that really started me thinking about uh, when I came to what do I want to do with the rest of my life, uh, student affairs was the, the, the easy answer because I could work with those type, same types of students that I was. Uh, but the entire time that I was doing student affairs for, for a decade before I moved to the faculty role, uh, my focus is really on taking these these really super involved students and helping them hone their skills to become even more effective working with their peers, uh, because really th those those people were were me uh, before that. So in in a lot of ways, this is this has been some autobiographical work for me. Okay, awesome, awesome. So, uh, what you know in your study and in your time uh, preparing as a as a leadership faculty member, what is I know this can be a tough question for you, but what's the best book about leadership? The best book about leadership. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right, Miles. I mean, that's a tough question. It's like saying, well, what's your favorite kid of yours? Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, there, there's a lot and they're all different. Um, it, you know, I, I, I almost feel bad saying this because I know that your podcast has, has paid a lot of attention to it in the, the past few, few issues. But uh, John Dugan's new book on leadership, uh, using critical analysis to, uh, to interrogate the way we think about leadership and what we know about leadership, r really, like, it's, a, it's an awesome, awesome book. Uh, it has a whole lot of uh, great information, and, and it's probably the only book that I know of that thinks about leadership and, and asks questions about the particular questions that it asks about leadership that it does. Uh, and if I would say for someone who is relatively new to the study of leadership, but has been interested in it for a while and has read some things or, or done some things, uh, John's book is really great. Uh, pick it up. You, can, you, you don't have to read it cover to cover, although that's obviously awesome if you do. Uh, but like particular snippets that might interest you, it, it'll, it'll expand your mind and make you think about leadership in a new way. I'll also add to that because you can never give just one answer. 
Uh, another book that I was thinking about too as you asked your question uh, that not a whole lot of people that I know have read uh, is another, it's a completely different book. It's, it's by Stephen Denning uh, called The Secret Language of Leadership. And I really love this book. Uh, Denning isn't a leadership theorist person. He's, he's actually somebody who uh, started out uh, in the, the World Bank uh, and is an, is an administrator. But his whole book, this, this book, The Secret Language of Leadership, talks about how transformational storytelling is to getting people to change their mind and to, to uh, come together for a common purpose. Uh, it's not facts. It's not figures or, or rational arguments or things like that that get people all moving in a common direction. It's storytelling and narrative. And, he, and he's, uh, he's become a professional storytelling. And if, if I was going to suggest a book to someone who's read a bunch of different leadership books uh, who may not heard of that book, The Secret Language of Leadership, highly recommend it. Okay, awesome. So our last question for this segment uh, focuses a little bit on your on your role, uh, specifically there at the University of Illinois. So what do you think is the most common misperception of the role of faculty? Oh, that's a great question, especially knowing that a lot of listeners are in the, the, the world of student affairs. I, I would say, so, I mean, well, there are a couple different things that, that are related to each other that I'll talk about quickly. Uh, one is that it's not, there's not just one role of faculty. There's not just one, like, Faculty are not the same in different places. Uh, my job at the University of Illinois, I, I, like I teach classes, but I even do that. That's my part-time job. My full-time job is doing research, uh, and I do that more than anything else. Uh, whereas at a at a, a liberal arts school or a smaller teaching co teaching college, that's all they do is they teach classes. So maybe the the first and most baseline misperception is that all faculty have the same types of jobs, uh, and that's not true. But the the, 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 the one thing that I'll add to that, though, uh, about the role of faculty that I think student affairs people sometimes make uh, is that they don't care about students, and they're often busy doing their own things. Uh, and and I, I would say from my, like, I, I left student affairs about six years ago, uh, and I was an, an associate director of a large leadership center on a large campus here at the University of Illinois. So busy leadership center, did a ton of different things. Uh, when I became a, a faculty member here across campus, I actually spent more time with students one-on-one -on -one and in groups than I ever did uh, while, I was, while I had my administ administrative job in student affairs. And in student affairs, I was, I was always in meetings with other student affairs people, planning programs and planning events and uh, trying to, to, to make sure that the, the, the overall structural environment in which students interacted on campus was, was strong. As a faculty member, that, I spent more time hanging out with them, talking to them about their career goals, uh, hanging out with them in the classroom, uh, office hours, and things like that. I, I think faculty in general spend a ton of time with students. Uh, we, just, in, we in student affairs just sometimes don't see that time because faculty don't show up at 7 o'clock at night for the program. The students are hanging out with them during the day, then at night, and in the evenings and the weekends. That's when they go and do student affairs things. So that, so th those two, uh, they're interrelated things. But th those are misperceptions that I often find that people have about faculty who aren't faculty themselves. Okay, awesome. So cool. let's shift to our last segment here, which is six big leadership questions. So we'll transition a little bit here to, uh, to uh, the issue of new directions in student leadership. So what led you to an interest in student organizations and to editing this chapter of new directions in student leadership? Sure, sure. Uh, I, I, first of all, I, I love the fact that New Directions for Student Leadership even exists. Uh, a, a decade ago, it wasn't around. Five, even five years ago, it wasn't around. 
uh, I know when, when I was uh, a new emerging professional, really super interested in leadership, there just weren't a whole lot of sources uh, to go about learning about stuff. So uh, the, the fact that this, the, the whole column exists and every quarter there's a, a new uh, a new issue that comes out with a new uh, uh, topic that, that, that's focused on related to student leadership, I think is awesome. For me, student organizations and why we talk about student organizations is uh, there's such a powerful, ubiquitous lever for student leadership on campus. Uh, I, I think on, on any campus, there are, I would guess, uh, for most campuses, the overall majority of campuses, there are more students who are involved in student organizations than are taking leadership classes, or uh, more students involved in student organizations than uh, that are part of co-curricular leadership training events, or uh, and even more so on the high school level too, which is another reason why I think uh, student organizations is important, is the focus of this issue isn't just on higher ed. It's also on, on high school. And we know that, uh, that the vast majority of high school students who are involved in student organizations in high school who then go to college, they're involved in college too. So uh, there's not a whole lot of, of pipeline uh, organization, I guess, uh, around uh, students that go from high school organizations to uh, collegiate student organizations. So because they're so ubiquitous, because there's literally hundreds of thousands of students over the course of time that, uh, that, that end up uh, joining student organizations, there's such a powerful lever. Uh, but there's, there's, there's actually not a whole lot that's written about them in a, in a rigorous, structure, research, structured, research-based way. Uh, to talk about how you can maximize and optimize the impact that they have, whether, whether it's for leadership or, or anything else on campus. So I, I was I was super excited to be able to take that take on that topic because it's so powerful. All right, awesome. So uh, as I was reading through uh, reading through your chapter and the issue generally, I, I found the simile to be really intriguing. This is from your uh, your chapter, which is the the first chapter in the issue. Uh, you said uh, you and, and your collaborator in the chapter said student organizations can serve as pebbles thrown into a pond, providing opportunities for widening the perspectives of their uninvolved peers through waves of their activities within the hallways of their secondary schools and the quads of their university campuses. You circle back to this notion a couple more times during the course of the chapter. Could you sort of expound on that thought and, and sort of connect that to, you know, to kind of general leadership theory? Sure, sure. Yeah. The first thought that I had, Miles, as you're reading is, wow, that's a really long sentence. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but beyond that, like, I, in, the, in the general idea of leadership education, one of the reasons why I think leadership education is so cool is the refractory effect. Uh, so like on a, on a higher ed or a, a secondary school campus, the, if students learn good leadership skills, it's not like that's only an individual thing, right? The, the students then, if they learn those skills and then they bring them back to the groups and organizations and relationships that, that those students themselves are already engaged in, that then makes their organization stronger. They make their relationships stronger. They, uh, they, uh, those students then become role models for their peers. So in general, regardless of the context, I think uh, that's why leadership education in general is so cool. But it, in student organizations, I think it's even cooler because it takes it another step. And I think that, that student organizations that are strong, student organizations that have the right idea about what place they hold on the college campus uh, with, it, with, with the individuals in, within them thinking about how they can use their organizations as levers for the campus, I think that refractory, refractory effect is doubled. So uh, like an easy example to point to would be like the, 
the, the strong student organization that decides that they want to do, uh, say, a so social justice program on campus, talking about uh, the role of relationships on campus in general and how, how playing fields can be leveled. That, that program, I mean, obviously, that's leadership development for the people who are involved in it, the, the people who are uh, advertising the program, the people who are arranging some speakers or whatever the activities are that are going to take place in that program, the people who are doing the logistics of room reservations and uh, foods and refreshments, if that's going to be there, or working with other campus offices, all of that's leadership development work. But the thing that I think is even even cooler about student organizations would be that, that that creates a wave on campus. The uninvolved students who don't, they may not even attend the program, but they just see the flyer who begin to think in question, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a way that I need to think about the world that I haven't before. The, the, the stronger student organizations are on campus, the more that those types of waves hit all students. Uh, so, and obviously they're going to have a, a great experience, hopefully, if it's a well-run program, if they show up. But there's the students who see the flyers. There are the students who get the email blasts. There are the students who, uh, who, who see their friends and role models in class working and talking about after class this program that they're working on. Uh, that, that refractory effect, that the waves that, that, that spread out from those programs, that, that's even bigger than just the students who, who attend a leadership class, for example, who might not be connected in any type of way, who then go out and apply their work within discrete organizations that never go beyond that. So I, I think student organizations in, in some of the chapters specifically talk about that, that effect uh, and the issue. I, I think if, if they're well run, it's the, it's the rising tide uh, that raises all ships, that, that type of idea, even if there aren't students directly involved. Awesome. So uh, there, there's also a section of the chapter that focuses on the history of student organizations. I wondered uh, what surprised you in your research for that section? So it's, it's really interesting. We wanted to make sure that there was a chapter on context, right? Like student organizations weren't just started yesterday. And we, if we can understand the, the path, the historical path that student organizations have taken, it, it would help us better understand both, both, both the, the authors, right? Like to help us understand how everything needs to fit together, but also the readers to understand like the, the historical context in which, in which all of this leadership development work that we're currently doing, where did it come from? Uh, and it's, I mean, it's interesting. If you, it, like anyone who's really delved into the, the history of the relationship between students and campuses, uh, like, and this goes back, like, we're not talking about through the 70s, we're talking about like the, the, the 1800s. If we, we look at some of those relationships, th th these are crazy stories, right? Like they're uh, like uh, uh, administrators and, and college campuses who have very ambivalent relationships with organizations. And if you look at some of the first ones, they're these are organizations that, that existed to advocate for the students because their lives were so hard. Uh, and not just hard because mm -hmm. they had a lot of homework, but hard because they didn't have housing, hard because uh, they had no way of, uh, of arranging to eat because they didn't have enough money because they were full-time students. Uh, they, they, they couldn't figure out ways that they had enough money to be able to eat in healthy ways. So the, the first organizations really were, they banded together to some, to some extent out of necessity to help themselves figure out how to collectively be successful as students on campus. Uh, and, and, and then the history of organizations grew out from that, right? Like they're, they're, there's a whole uh, subsection of, of, of the history of student organizations as it relates to advocacy for underrepresented students and, and the history of how 
how social identity-based groups came together, I think is just, it's, it's super interesting. But for me, I mean, the, the most surprising part uh, as, a, as a historian, uh, we, we, we know now, we think it's, it's just common sense that we need to have good relationships with student, students on campus and, and they need to have uh, supports to be successful. But a couple hundred years ago, the way campuses uh, looked at students is you show up, you work really hard, and I don't need to think about you anymore other, other than that. Uh, so, I mean, that, that was really surprising for me. And, and, it, and it then makes sense the way we sometimes think about uh, how student organizations band together in a grassroots way that grew out of that. Okay, great. So something that I wanted to, to talk about a little bit was ever since the, the first time I read Heifetz and his notion of holding environments, I've been fascinated by the idea, but I also couldn't imagine a context in most walk of, walks of life where that notion is viable until I started thinking more about the, uh, the application in student organizations. So could you provide a quick summary of holding environments and sort of make your argument because there's a, a definite you know, link that you, that you make in the chapter uh, between holding environments and, uh, and student organizations. So could you provide a summary of holding environments and then sort of describe how you see the connection between those things? Sure, sure. Well, the, the, a fundamental presumption that we're making throughout the issue, and, and, and one of the reasons why, why I think student organizations are, are, are cool and, and that we need to make sure that we're paying attention to them, is that they're, they're based on the idea that these types of organizations exist in the professional world in exactly the same way. Uh, is, and what I mean by that is that uh, like the same types of like political, gossipy, relationship-oriented, dr drama-filled things that happen in fraternities and sororities, for example, are exactly the same types of uh, bureaucratic, relationship, drama-based uh, things that happen in professional organizations related to promotions and, and who gets what jobs and who the boss likes and who the boss doesn't like and how budgetary decisions are made. They, they work the same way. Uh, and and the, the reason why I think the, the concept of a holding environment is so important when we think about student organizations is if, if these are the same issues, uh, if, if students in high schools and if stu and students in universities, if they're faced with the same issues then that they're going to have when they have jobs, like full-time jobs that are, are paying them to support their families and themselves, why, why would we not want them to intentionally work on those skills uh, in, in a place where the worst thing that might happen to them is that they lose their election to become the president or uh, the program flops because they didn't market it well, so only 10 people showed up, right? Like th those can be th – those types of things can be psychologically crushing to a college student, but it's not on the same scale as a, as a working professional with – uh, a partner and two kids who gets fired and now needs to figure out how to pay the mortgage. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difference in, in scale or a difference in scope. And, and I really like the idea of thinking about student organizations as, as this holding environment for, for these students to struggle through these issues. So like I don't think – working professionals don't know how to, how to manage those types of things in, in, in a lot of different types of ways. College students, high school students definitely don't. But let's provide this – let's think about student organizations as this place where – uh, we, we, we can, like literally, we can hold them so that they can work on those types of things. Uh, if, we can, if we can optimize their environments so that they can work on those in productive ways and come up with some, uh, some skills 
uh, and some, some cognitive schemas for, for what should you do if you're working with a weak president, right? And uh, which would be the same as a bad supervisor. And I need to figure out how to create a productive relationship with him or her. And I need to still get things done with that organization. And I still want to advocate for myself. If I can figure out in a, in a, in a student organization that, that has healthy relationships and a good relationship with my advisor where people care about the success of that organization, I'm going to be so much more likely than then know what to do and pr uh, create a productive response to that in the professional environment where I have that that weak supervisor or, or some transition happened that I wasn't expecting and I, and, and I need to be successful at that. I, I think that, that, that student organizations provide that, that means where they, they, students clearly care and they want to be successful, but if they're not successful, it's not going to mean the same thing as, as it might 10 years from, from then when, when things that are even more, more crucial to the success of their life are hanging on their decisions. The, the, does that make sense, Miles? I, I, I think it's, that, that it's just really powerful for that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think the, the challenge with application to a lot of notions of, of holding environments are the um, sort of transparency and the honesty that is required there may not be applicable to, to some of those environments, but, you know, particularly, I, I think, immediately of professional environments and how that sort of transparency could, you know, could totally be, uh, you know, could be completely inappropriate in that particular setting. I think the classroom is is another place where you know maybe that's that's not uh, you know uh, that's certainly up for discussion, but could potentially not be sort of a, a space for that conversation anymore. But I think student I, I think student organizations really um, still could be a place where that where that happens, and I and I think that uh, a lot of people agree that that the notion of a holding environment is a really ideal space for leadership learning. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, as most basic level, I think some of the things that I think you're talking about is psychological safety, right? Like the the ability to be who you are in an authentic way, and that doesn't necessarily mean letting like all your emotions flow out all the all the time, but to be able to say, if you can practice saying uh, saying things that you're you're nervous about. Uh, to be able to say, uh, folks, I, I'm not sure that we're doing this the right way, or uh, what do we think about doing it this way? If, if we can learn that in student organizations, which are often populated by our friends, right, and, and they're not filled with our friends, but we have friends in these organizations and some people that we might not be as tight with if they're, if they're larger organizations, if we can practice that there – uh, and that sense of psychological safety, I, I think you're right, Miles. That's it's an even better place in organizations than it might be in a classroom where there's grades and the professor might not have the same relationship with you as an advisor uh, that sees you in a lot of different lights in organizations. And and that definitely doesn't uh, doesn't automatically exist, at least in a professional setting. Uh, where you're in your first job and you're trying to put your best face forward. And uh, because it's your first one, you don't really know exactly what's required for success. If we can practice that stuff in organizations, it, it, I'm not saying that if you're good in student organizations, you're automatically going to be successful in your, in your job, but that if you've practiced that, that, that behavior there, you're going to be more likely uh, to feel comfortable trying something out uh, in, in it because it was, it was productive in the organization uh, in that first job or in the second job where you had the first time you ever were faced with a challenge like that before. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I wondered uh, something that something that I, that I believe is uh, important to you is the sort of structuring of student organizations. So 
How, how yeah. do you think that we need to structure student organizations in order to create max, maximum potential success with those groups? Sure, sure. I, 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 I think that they're – well, I mean, on its most basic level, it's sort of like saying, how, how do you create the best car? Like, there are 100 different ways that you can create an, an awesome car. Uh, so you're, you're, in a lot of ways, you're trying to prioritize and balance a, a, a bunch of different things based on what kind of car you want. But I, I, given all that, there, I mean, there's still – uh, commonalities, right? So, like, if, if I was trying to create the structure of a student organization from scratch, uh, at its most basic level, if, if you don't do anything else, or <laughs> thinking cynically, if you don't do anything else right, uh, creating for them an experience that what they think is important. So, students, students need to feel like their work is important. Uh, and I think that uh, some, some organizations if I, if I was advising them, whether formally or informally, uh, more than anything else, helping them see that the work that they do could have an impact, whether that's on them, whether that's on other people, whether that's achieving whatever the mission is of the organization. And, and if, if you can create that type of uh, feeling of importance where what they do matters, uh, that, that then creates some psychological investment to buy in for when things are difficult. And if, and if they can stick around when things are difficult, that's when they're going to be able to practice all those things that we just talked about uh, when we talked about why student organizations are good holding environments. So I mean, more than anything else, that's, that's probably the, the most basic thing. But then beyond that, I, I think that uh, it's, there's, there's sort of a, a balance that needs to be struck between organization and structure. So people have an expectation of what's going to happen when they join and freedom and flexibility to be responsive to the adaptive situation of different individuals joining and leaving organizations, as well as the environmental context of things changing on campus, or to be responsive to the types of, of changing needs of, of the student body or the campus itself. Uh, so what I mean by that is that the, the more structured that we can create experiences for students, the more that they can feel that they can explore places within that. Uh, if, if, the, if students know that uh, here's an executive board, here are these some positions that, that, that exist. People can then uh, have a goal to shoot for if they want to occupy those positions, for example. But at the same time, the more structure that there is, the less responsive that's going to be to any individual. So within having a, like, say, a structured executive board uh, set of positions, uh, the organization needs to be flexible at all times to be able to say, well, you know, this other person had this cool idea. Let's create some space for them that's within the holding environment of the student organization that, that might be outside of that traditional structure. Uh, so that's a, a student coming in with a new idea or uh, the, the, what, the, some really important thing happened on campus and the, the student organization wants to respond to that in some formal way to, to provide a voice for students, say, or to, uh, for a variety of reasons, to be able to be flexible and, and, and adaptive to that. So, I mean, if the first thing is to help students recognize how they can make their work important to themselves and others, the second thing is to help them create a structure where there's lots of, position, of positions of, of like formal involvement, I, I would say, as well as a, a adaptivity. Let's, let's have this structure, but then know that we can play around with that structure in general. D does that make sense, uh, Miles, the way, I'm, the way I'm sort of explaining this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, I think, yeah, the, I think that's... The, the, and, okay, keep going. No, no, you go ahead. 
Well, the, 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 in given that, the, the one other thing that I would add, and it's uh, it's something that I don't I, I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, but I, I think we don't nearly talk enough about in higher ed specifically uh, is if I was also going to be starting these organizations from scratch, I'd, I'd be looking for connections to, uh, to secondary ed. Uh, there are so many different analogous organizations from, from, from high school uh, to then move on to, to college. And it obviously looks a lot different. The way a student organization is run in high school is a lot different than the way it's, it's run in college. But I think that uh, if, if we were going we to really – uh, realize uh, as much as possible the potential of student organizations for developing student leadership, that's probably the easiest growth area is just recognizing how do we get students who are involved in high school uh, to, to, to ramp up their skills quickly as, as first-year students or as transfer students. Uh, and, and so what, what are the onboarding uh, experiences that we have in, in higher ed? Uh, in secondary ed, what are the types of things that we're doing for, high, for, for graduating seniors to help them recognize how student involvement looks differently in, in college so they're not overwhelmed by the fact that their advisor doesn't make most of the decisions and now there are students who are, are, are making these decisions and what is my place in that as a, as a first-year student? If, so that, that's probably the third thing, the third and final thing that I would say. So if you're only going to do three things, it would be those. Make, make everybody feel like their work is important, provide a structure, but yet be adaptive enough within that structure. Uh, and then think about how are we orienting students both out of, high, out of secondary and then into, into higher ed organizations. Cool. All right, so let's, let's end with this. Uh, we, we've touched on this a little bit, but why are student organizations important? Sure. Like in, in a in a summary type of way, I mean, to, I mean, at its most basic level, it's about numbers, right? There there are more students involved in student organizations than probably almost any other co-curricular experience, uh, and and especially if you're being expansive in your definition of student organizations as like a, a, a co-recreational sports club sports team, like the the group of guys that play basketball together. Uh, if you're including that, then totally even more so than anything else. Uh, but because there's just so many students uh, in high school and college, I think they're important just just for a numbers perspective. Uh, but then even beyond that, uh, to sum up maybe what I was talking about before, these organizations are microcosms of, of the, the professional and community organizations that they're going to be joining and volunteering for when they're adults. If they can learn how to be successful, how to organize themselves, uh, how to conduct themselves uh, effic uh, effectively as, as leaders and as, as group members within those organizations, these professional organizations, these community organizations are going to be that much stronger for it. Uh, we don't want them to learn bad habits. That would be even worse. Uh, but if we can create some good habits uh, in them, it, like, I mean, the, 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 the rainbows and puppies answer is not only will the campus be better, but the world will be literally be a better place if we can create these, uh, these skills and competencies and students learn through student organizations leadership. The world would be a better place. That is, the world uh, would be a, a better good, place. <laughs> that's a good note to end on. So thanks for everyone for thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. And thanks to Dr. Dr. Dave Rosh. Dave, if you had one bit of advice to give to an aspiring student leadership practitioner, what would you pass along? A one piece of advice. Know that your work has ripples years later. Your work matters. These people are learning skills that they're going to be utilizing for the rest of their lives. Your work matters. I'm glad that you're doing it. Keep it up. All right. Thanks. So Dave can be found on Twitter at Dave Rosh. 
And he also has a lab for which you can find more information at http colon backslash backslash illinoisleaderlab.org. And the focus of the research is formal leadership development programs and courses for emerging adults and their effects on those who participate in them. You can also track down the fall 2017 issue of New Directions and Student Leadership through the Wiley Online Library. You can get more information about the KCN on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALEAD, on Twitter at NASA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to NASPLeaderPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Miles.